Good afternoon and welcome to Town Square. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. As we like to say every week, this conversation includes you. And if you'd like to join us, the phone lines are open at 941-3689, 941-3689 if you call us from Oahu and from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. That number also works if you're listening to the live stream from someplace other than Hawaii. You can get to us and participate at that 877-941-3689 number. Now, you can probably relate to this in your life. There often comes a point when everything old is new again. In conservation and protection terms, that idea can manifest with a return to indigenous ways, or at least a careful consideration of them, to frame answers to modern questions of natural resource management. Since the opening of the IUCN World Conservation Congress, we've taken a lot of time on the morning show, The Conversation, to hear from some conference attendees from around the world whose communities face many of the same environmental engagement issues as confronts Hawaii. Today, we shift back to Hawaii communities and some of the takeaways from the Congress, which, as we've heard throughout the gathering, often means a melding of old and new. So how much control should local communities have over the management of their natural resources? That's the question for Town Square as the IUCN World Conservation Congress moves toward its conclusion. And again, if you'd like to participate in tonight's discussion, you can call us at 941-3689 if you're on Oahu and from anywhere else at 877-941-3689. Joining me around the table tonight are Kevin Chang. He is the executive director of Kua'aina Ulu Omo, Daviana Pomaika'i McGregor, professor in the UHM Department of Ethnic Studies, Kelson Mac Poipoi, Master Fisher and co-founder of Hui Malama O Mo'omomi, and Kristen Walker, the Senior Vice President for the Center for Environment and Peace at Conservation International. She's also the chair of the Specialist Group on Indigenous Peoples, Customary and Environmental Law and Human Rights on the IUCN Commission that focuses on social policy. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. With all of the activities at the IUCN, and if you're involved with any of it, it's pretty much been your world for perhaps months before as much as it is what's been happening this week. But now as you have a chance to kind of look back over your shoulder a little bit at this issue of how communities can have their voices heard and are they hearing each other as much within the context of of the Congress as well as, you know, afterward. How do you judge what has been going on at the conference, just as you're you're taking a look at it now? I'm going to start with you, Kristen, as Um, you come from so far. Sure. Um, I think having been involved in the IUCN Congress in the past, it's been really interesting to see the transition and change in the conservation community about how There's always been work with communities, and I think to a certain extent positively and negatively in many areas. And I think now you're seeing communities at the center of conservation, and you're seeing people at the center of conservation. And that's really the way we're going to achieve and be able to protect our planet for humanity. And we really need to look at how we support and create better enabling environments so that communities can continue the stewardship they do, but also support them in new areas that they need to move forward on. Daviana. I think the best part of the um, conference has been the ability for ourselves as Native people 
who are guardians for sacred uh, lands, in, in my case, the Protect Kalabi Ohana, caring for Kanaloa Kohalabi, being able to connect with other Native peoples who are guardians for their sacred areas and to share our common experiences and to envision future collaboration where we can uh, build upon those experiences to help each other um, uh, not only pray, but also network uh, to help protect um, their their sacred lands that are threatened by extractive um, projects such as seabed mining or uranium mining or um, logging, um, as well as even tourist activities. As we heard this morning when we talked with David Helvarg, that there are many World Heritage Sites where those activities are, in fact, happening. Yes. Mac, what's your... What's your take on the IUCN and how voices from communities are being able to talk to each other now? I'm not too familiar with what's going on. I'm pretty new to all this, but um, just listening to people sharing some of the same issues we deal with here in Hawaii, I think that um, we can move forward, but in order for us to do that, we... We rely on government, too, to help us to implement a lot of the things that we need to do to move forward. What impressed you the most as you were listening to people talk this week, and and you were, in fact, in in some of the sessions? Yeah. What impressed me the most is um, the recognition that indigenous communities seem to have better resources um, seem, seem to have um, resources in much better shape than most other places. And that is something that I think we need to look real carefully at in uh, our decision-making. And, and in better shape because they've been better stewarded by indigenous peoples. Correct. Kevin? Yeah, I think the, the number I heard was 80% of the world's protected areas are where indigenous communities are. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, it was 80%. Yeah. What was what was affirming to me is we held what we call the Global Ealupu. We had our Ealupu network, which is 32 different communities statewide, got to meet and gather with their peers from around the world. So we had about 70 folks from Hawaii. And this was before the conference ever pre, started? The Pre-Congress, yeah. And, and 70 folks from around the world representing over 30 different countries. Um, they spent three days together. They put their hands to the soil. They went into the fish pond together. Um, they they drank ava together. Um, it was very affirming, I think, just to see. Sometimes this work, especially a lot of our folks are are kind of come from rural communities. Um, you just realize that you're not alone in what you're doing. In fact, it's a it's a global phenomenon. And in fact, they all had a special right. sign on their badges at the Congress so that even though the Congress was so big, they could continue to reconnect throughout the Congress. And I thought that was really important Mm -hmm. that KUA had done in the network and making sure that sharing continued, not just at the gathering, but throughout the Congress. So everyone who had a badge, every time you saw them, or I got hugs, it was was great. Well, especially when you have, you know, what, 10,000 people over there to be able to find the 70 who participated. It it was uh, Yeah, they had friends going into it. They had friends going in. As you look at some of the conversation that you had before the Congress ever opened mm-hmm. with those 70 people, were you struck by any particular differences or similarities among the groups that, that participated? 
I think the the diff- there was a lot of similarities uh, in terms of when they spoke about the issue. I think the differences were contextual. Um, you know, depending on how their government relates to their people, um, the situations they were in. I mean, some some of the people who are attending come from places where they're threatened for thinking what they think and doing what they believe. So that was the contrast, really, was the, the context that each community works in. Yeah. We heard a little bit ago from, from Kristen that a lot of conversation about indigenous peoples having real control over their resources is now at sort of at the center of the conversation from her perspective. Do you agree with that, Daviana? Well, I guess we're, we are working very hard to enable, I'm working with Mac, a part of the team, to put together a plan and proposal to designate the northwest coast of Molokai from Ilio Point to Pelikunu as a community-based um, subsistence fishing area. So we are very much in support of having indigenous peoples manage resources that we rely upon for uh, subsistence. That's really essential uh, because the people who are on the land and watching it, they did macos to monitor every day, um, know the resources the best and are in the best position to monitor. And as um, Kevin said, the places that where where Native peoples have continued to be the primary stewards are the places that are the best preserved and have the most biodiversity. That's not necessarily a fact that we hear a whole lot. And, and that's why I'm curious about this idea of how the conversation has moved from being rather external to the Congress to being at the center of it from you know some perspectives and wondering if that's what you also see as you look at life in, in Hawaii. Do we really talk about this enough in the center of the conversation, or is it sometimes window dressing? Well, I think our efforts to get the Momomi proposal approved will will prove that, whether or not it is window dressing. Um, there, there was also a strand called Nature and Culture that I guess originated out of the Jeju Conference. And so there were sessions that were focused on how to integrate nature and culture together and science with in, indigenous people's uh, practices. And um, I think that they, they also had a, a proclamation to make a commitment to bring that board to the center, I think, of the of the next IUCN, and to have sessions where there's more conversations between scientists and environmentalists with indigenous peoples rather than to have parallel sessions. I think that was one of the issues. But And the governor uh, was what hosted this reception and uh, shared that our Constitution mandates that the state, you know, uh, protect the natural resources, manage the resources as a public trust, and and made a commitment that you know that was part of his mission as governor to do so. But we see often that the issue of um, public trust uh, purposes for natural resources are also always in contention. I mean, we've seen this over decisions about water use and. Uh, the most recent cases with the um, Navaiha and Maui and the East Maui resources, for example, I think that was the at the heart of the issue, um, wh- whether the water resources will be held for the public trust and benefit the people or whether commercial uses will override that. And that, that has been at the heart of a lot of the issues regarding um, water use and um, fishing resource management. 
That was Daviana McGregor. If you're just joining us tonight on Town Square, we're asking this question. How much control should local communities have over the management of their natural resources or certainly be consulted in terms of how those resources will be stewarded. We want to hear from you. 941-3689 is our number. If you call us from Oahu, use that one. And if you call us from the neighbor islands, our number is 877-941-3689. We talk a lot about home rule. We talk a lot about control of various communities. But what, what's the appropriate place for that right now? And are we really talking about that in the center of the conversation, or is it still, in your mind, more peripheral? We want to hear from you, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Kevin, I want to bring you back into this, too. When you're involved with this on a day-to-day basis, as you are, and Mac, too, that obviously it's at the very center of your life because that's what you're doing. But watching what happens in terms of the overall conversation, is this enough in Hawaii, or are we just getting to that tipping point that maybe we'll see if, in fact, Aviana is right and the proposal is accepted? I, f- I feel that there's a, there's some kind of wave we're starting to get on here um, with the recent passing of the Haena Community-Based Subsistence Fishing Area Rules, the, the fish pond permitting process. The state went through a lot to try to start helping this restoration of fish pond movement and help it move forward. And the governor mentioned it specifically. Yeah, and so I, I think um, I think that something is happening, and I, I, I feel that, that we are at that place where, you know, the, the other thing is that communities now are talking to each other. What they do, the work they do is no longer in isolation. They know what each other are, each other is doing, and they're talking about it, and they're speaking for each other, not just for their place alone. And that's happening too, so I just think there's a lot of elements that are leading to something bigger. So I don't think it is, you know, peripheral. I think it is moving towards towards the center. With so many people that you are talking to, that you talk to, Mac, Daviana, Kristen, all of you who have been doing this for such a long time, because you've just said, Kevin, that you think we are at a very different point right now. How do you keep that momentum up after you all say goodbye, come Saturday or or Sunday, to be able to keep that momentum and keep the feelings of solidarity in a way happening too what happens come sunday well, we're lucky that there's technology that <laughs> enables us to keep uh, in touch through you know our websites um and um through film so i for the protect la Ohana, we we hosted um 15 different people from uh, around the world from Borneo, the Altai region in Russia, the um, Mongolia, as well as uh, Kenya. And um, and we, we also met with the uh, people who are in Ecuador, have the Living uh, Forest Project. And so through the Sacred Lands Film Project and their work, um, there were films that were made featuring different um, communities who are guardians of sacred places and was threatened. this a standing on sacred ground series? Sa- yes, yeah, so there right. were eight we different to communities. Be- yes, we, we talked to Toby this right. morning. Right, and so we had 
uh, what the the man from Papua New Guinea, we, who we also hosted, said, "I when I came here, I already knew you because I had seen the film." And um, and then he said, "Thanks to technology, we can continue to keep in touch and network." So I think that medium has been very effective, and social net, social media is effective in keeping us in touch with each other to continue uh, uh, the support and the conversations about how to support each other. And to do sacred ceremonies, I think we, we there's also a commitment that we want to continue connections. I mean, the mountains are all connected the, throughout the world, and the guardians of the mountains also see the need to begin to do more active ceremony to protect our mountains, that uh, protect our our ecosystem. Kristen. Part of what you do is to be able to go around the world and to see some of what has been happening in the networking with a lot of these people who were in Toby McLeod's films and to be able to keep those, you know, those bonds nice and, and firm. Do you see anything happening aside from the technology that, that Daviana mentioned that we're, you know, clearly you can get on, you can FaceTime someone or Skype them or whatever, but a sense that there is a tightening of those bonds in a way that creates a worldwide momentum as opposed to people who are sharing to draw upon strength of others to be able to do something in their own communities solo? Um, I think there's an overall solidarity. I think, you know, there is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and that has been a a force, a tool that Indigenous peoples have been able to use collectively in being able to engage with their governments, but also being able to engage globally. And it creates a framework for them to be able to have these discussions. I also think that there has been a lot of exchange at this meeting in terms of how we can understand what we're doing in different... One is to have the conversation. The other is to help facilitate exchanges between Indigenous communities that you really help understand how communities are implementing or addressing, but also you can bring back that knowledge to your own community. So the other key component of this conversation is how can we get to funders to really help support the engagement across communities and how that knowledge can be shared, but also continue to spread that along. And I think funders are really important in this aspect and how you create better access to financial resources for indigenous peoples and local communities to continue to pursue their conservation efforts. And that's a huge factor in the conversation, how you can continue this momentum. We can use technology and have that solidarity, but putting that all into action does does need financial resources to do so and how we can we can support those efforts and continue to drem- demonstrate the value that indigenous peoples and local communities have in this because you have to sort of be able to demonstrate with governments to be able to move forward because oftentimes governments don't have the capacity to execute but communities do and how can we continue to push that voice higher and higher in terms of engaging with government. Kevin made a point a little earlier in the show that with some of the people that were engaged with him before the Congress ever started, that you know, they come from places where this is not welcome and governments don't want to help. And that may certainly thwart the ability to, to fund and be able to participate as fully. What about those places where very clearly the governments don't want to see this But happen. I think you can use examples from other places and engaging governments in dialogue to be able to transform that conversation. And I think that's what these examples and the experiences here in Hawaii and in other countries can help do. You can show a government that it can be done in another way. It's in a, I think it's a lot of matter of creating the enabling environment, not only for the communities, but also for the government. A lot of, and, I'm, and I can't say it for all governments, 
Some governments have a very different approach. But I think if you can provide them with examples of how it can be done, how it might not be so difficult, or how you can work through things with dialogue, then it you may be able to move that forward. And is there someone or, you know, not someone, but a government that you feel is a good example of that? I think you can look at the some of the programs that have been done in Ecuador with a program called Sociobosque that has been working with communities and providing incentive program for them to help support the management of the forest rather than the selling off of the of those areas. I think you can look at the example of the Kayapo Indians in Brazil who have been working to protect their lands and now there's been a program to develop a trust fund for them to be able to manage their lands. And if you look around the 11 million hectares that the Kayapo have all of that is encroachment from threat around from the expansion of agriculture. So it's a really good example about how by supporting indigenous peoples through financing and supporting additional capacity needs they may need to be able to manage those lands and protect them from outside invasion, it's really important to do that and support those initiatives. And how well would you, you know, rank the United States in its efforts? I think it has a set of mixed efforts on that. I think it depends on a lot on the regulations in, in different in different. You have the federal regulations, you have state regulations, and you have multiple layers on doing those pieces. And I think Kevin and, and the team here can speak for how their work has been going on in Hawaii. But I think the doors are opening more and more because government can't – it takes a village, literally, to be able to do this. It takes a community to help support and fill in the areas that government cannot do, and, they, and that needs to be recognized. So in the village that maybe your community – how much control do you think it should have over the management of the natural resources that are in your community? We want to hear from you, 941-3689, if you're on Oahu and from the neighbor islands, or if you're listening to the live stream, join us at 877-941-3689. Going to Charlie, calling from Hokena. Yeah, hello, and uh, thank you for uh, allowing me some time and for putting on this forum. Uh, I made, I had one comment. Uh, I'm from Hokena, and we're a fishing village in South Kona, where uh, indigenous people still live and still practice many of the fishing traditions uh, and customs uh, that were handed down with regard to how they fish Opelu and uh, manage their uh, fishing resources. Uh, my comment was that uh, for indigenous people here in Hawaii, not only do we have the right to do it, we have laws behind it, and we have an obligation to Malama. So I think community-based uh management of resources is really incumbent upon indigenous people as a responsibility. My question, uh, I think for the panel, I know each of you bring different di uh, disciplines. Um, how um, uh, can you in your individual field uh, articulate that better to the state? Uh, because the policymakers and, and the agencies who actually make the laws, enforce the laws, are like primarily with the state and not with the federal government. Um, and uh, I'd like to see the state become more active in, um, on behalf of the indigenous people and primarily in the area of education so they can educate the people who are not indigenous, who are new to Hawaii, who come to Hawaii, uh, about the, uh, how the indigenous people want to see the state or at least the resources of it managed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for the call. If you'd like to join us, again, our number is 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 as we're talking about community resource management and the appropriate role for that in Hawaii as we've been looking at various places around the world over the, the course of the IUCN 
World Conservation Congress since last Thursday on, on the morning show, now really turning back to Hawaii and seeing what is it that we take away from some of the stories that we've been hearing from around the world, certainly for those who have attended the Congress. And what do you think? Obviously, you know, you may not have been at that Congress, and yet you have some very strong opinions, no doubt, about community resource management. We want to hear from you. 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. So let's get Charles an answer. He's, he's really looking for much more coming from the state than clearly what he's seeing now, and the fact that Hawaii is different than many of the other states, and what is that appropriate role, and how can it be articulated better? Davian, you want to take it on first? Yeah, but I think it would be also good if Mac could share his experience because he's been working for 25 years to <laughs> establish it. And, he, you know, he came up with the idea back in 1991 that we should have uh, the state sh- D- Department of Land and Natural Resources should create a management designation for for communities to manage nearshore resources for subsistence, and it's been a twenty five year process. All so right, maybe so Matt so can Mac, share Mac, that. Go ahead. Let's let's look at it from your okay, I'll try over my your best. view. <laughs> I think that um, you know we like to blame government. Sometimes it's on us too, but in this case, government needs to step up and um, take on a role that they play as Konohiki. For us at Moomomi, I can I can speak for Moomomi, and I I have to say that we can be an example of what works, and that's the kind of stuff that maybe the the state should look at, and come and join us, work to work with the people, and make it happen. Well, tell me more about that role. I mean, explicitly because. What you're doing at, at Momomi is, is one thing, but if you're talking about something that moves through the state, what more would you like to see in the role that the state should play that would make you happy? I think the the one good example, I, uh, I'll give you guys a good example that I got from the IUCN attending this conference. And I think everybody know by now that Palau is a good example of what works. If we cannot see that very, you know, um, example, then maybe we're sleeping. And I, I think we are. Because the state can use that example, but the way it's designed, they, they don't want to give away too much to the people. They want to maintain that control. So... Um, and that's, it's not really about control. It's about managing the ecosystem properly. And that's where we want to be. We want to be like Palau. You mentioned that we may be sleeping, or at least lawmakers may be sleeping. What do you think it's going to take to wake them up, even with all the other information that we have seen, that we talk about with climate change and what may be happening in Hawaii in the future, what's already happening with the oceans, with acidification, with coral disease, all kinds of stress and, and pressure on our environment with tourism. And yet we're, we're, cert- we're certainly you know, courting that, trying to bring it here too. So what do you think has to happen to wake them up to the level that you would like to see them awaken? So they've been sleeping longer than we think. They've How been- long? <laughs> 
over 25 years okay. since I've been doing my project. Um, and I think that um, all, it, all of this happened way before climate change, where they needed to step up, and they did. Um, so it's been a long time. And maybe um, if they put themselves under a microscope, they can see all the problems real clear. It's, it's not something that we need to work and uh, come up with answers. The answers are very clear. Palau, like I said, Moomomi um, is a good example. So if we take look at places and projects that work, maybe the state can inherit some of that and start implementing a lot of this stuff. Kevin, it seems that what Mac is also saying is that there has to be a choice to want to do this, not mm-hmm. just saying, okay, we could do this mm-hmm. or, or seeing examples of Palau and other places, but making a real concerted effort to make this happen or make it you know, the ethos of, of Hawaii, that we are going to do this. We hear a lot of those words in mm-hmm. summer in part from the LNR, mm-hmm. from, you know, from the, even from the governor, other organizations, how well networked do you think they, they really are in, and how serious do you think they are in, in wanting to take this on and create more of the, the vision that we just heard from Mac? Well, first I wanted to address that, you know, Mac talked about the state as Konohiki, and, and then Deviana talked about public trust. And when I think about Konohiki, I think about a person who helps empower the community to take care of the, its environment that, the, that they're living in. And our state could get better at empowering our citizens to speak, to to uh, to govern ourselves. Um, that's to me one of the main cruxes of this this issue here. But but he uh, also made the point that it isn't perhaps not the best interest of the state to be able to give oh away yeah, its I power. I understand that too. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, the the governor did announce uh, at the opening of the Congress this idea that of protecting 30%, I believe, of our nearshore um, resources. And for him to do that, to say something like that, uh, that's something that the state cannot accomplish alone. It needs to start working with the communities who know their nearshore resources, folks like Mac who have understood for a long time that something is happening and changing there. Um, they need to start listening and then empowering citizenry to take part in that. Especially with the time frame that they've put on that. Yes. that that's not that far away, 2020. Yeah. So that's something. That's a, I think that's a step for them to actually say that um, indicates that the state is wanting to to come to the table, I guess, metaphorically. Now, while you were talking, I was watching Daviana Wright. I was also watching Kristen Wright. Who wants to go next? <laughs> All right. Daviana, well, go ahead. I just wanted to add that... Um, uh, yesterday, we also had a symposium at the university where uh, there, there are faculty who, uh, that I work with that are forming a biocultural initiative for the Pacific so that we can bring scientists in conversation with the community that's managing the resources. And so we explored in our conversations and panels um, how can scientists w- uh, acknowledge uh, indigenous methods and um, ways of monitoring the resources and um, uh, and how can the, the communities um, collaborate with the university researchers in, in their efforts. But I think um, so that I think that was an important beginning to the to be 
begin the awareness of the importance of bringing together uh, scientific approaches to research and monitoring and, and management with the community. Because one of the problems we're, we're, uh, we've had with the proposal that we're putting forward is that MAC has an approach to monitoring that is based on indigenous observation and calculating in relationship to the moon. And the end goal is that there's enough fish to feed the community and there's enough marine resources that supports the Karani community. But when scientists have come in, you know, they do random sample surveys rather than trying to look at where the populations are and how healthy they are. And they have different research questions. They're not necessarily looking at, is there enough food for a sustainable harvest here uh, where, we, where people can still s- subsist on this and, and gather and feed our families uh, and still there'll be um, resources for, you know, s- our future generations, and it'll be an ongoing sustainable resource. So the, the questions are really different, and the data that they produce is different, and, and somehow we have to have the uh, government acknowledge that the indigenous data, the Native Hawaiian data collecting and the monitoring is as important and as valuable as what is being generated by the scientists, and the scientists need to val- validate that too. And, and hopefully be, be speaking in the same language so that everybody yes. can be understanding what each one is talking about in concert with, with, with the other. Kristen? I, I want to echo Taviana's comments. She hit one that I, that I was going to make. But I, the, the incorporation of in, indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge is extremely important. Um, within the IUCN, you often hear of the red list of threatened species, which is extremely important in looking at conservation me- measures. But we've also taken on within IUCN a new program that's looking at people and nature that's trying to get at taking that information at this very high level, but actually understanding how communities are interacting with nature, not only for their subsistence, but also culturally how that reacts. And how can you balance that out with the scientific information or understand why a species is under a particular threat, but what that means for a community. And it's really, really important to be able to mesh those two because you can make, you can do great things with protecting a species, but at the same time, communities may be losing resources in another way. And I think that's really important to to meld those pieces together. Back to the other point, I think it's really important. A lot of the issues I think that Mac highlighted is policy is getting decision makers on the ground to see what's happening in communities. A lot of the best way to change policymakers' thinking is getting them to visit what those communities are doing and understanding and how they're incorporating. Putting feet on the ground. Putting feet on the ground and making them understand how customary law or customary or traditional practice is working and letting them see, in many cases, it's maybe more effective than the regulatory practices they have and how can you mesh them and create better guidelines that meet both the government needs and the community needs. And that's extremely important. All right, we're going to go back to the phone lines if you'd like to join us, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. And I understand we've got Mililani Trask on the phone. Good morning. Oh, good. Sorry about that. Good afternoon. Aloha. Aloha. Uh, This is Mililani Trask. I'm one of the, considered to be one of the original drafters of the United Nations Declaration, the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And in fact, I spent 22 years in this endeavor. This was before uh, it was actually passed. It became international law in the year 2007. Following that, the United States of America uh, brought a claim to the uh, under the International Human Rights Treaty called the third, the Con- Convention to Eliminate Racial Discrimination. America claimed 
that the declaration was merely advisory. However, they lost that claim, and the United Nations treaty bodies then ruled that in interpreting America's human rights obligation to its indigenous peoples, they would use the declaration as the standard of obligation. The provisions of the declaration make clear that indigenous peoples and their communities have human rights in the form of claims for cultural purposes, not only to their lands, but to their territories and resources. And so for the Pacific Basin peoples, uh, Kanaka Maoli included, Hawaiians included, this means that there is a human right for access, for development, and also to utilize marine resources and land-based mm-hmm. resources for cultural purposes. And this could be, for instance, using the hail of the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, but also gathering. And the point that was just made for the purpose of ensuring that there is food for sustenance, the right to feed yourself, your family, and your community. And these were issues that came up at the IUCN conference and not uh, cast always in a political, uh, in a positive light. Uh, one of the speakers who came was Victoria Kauli Corpus, the current United Nations Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples. She only on last Friday released the United Nations study demonstrating how protected areas established by governments and conservationists have in fact resulted in human rights violations for Native peoples who are no longer allowed to gather there and who are being denied their right to manage the resource directly. Your conversation focuses on how many can work together for responsible resource management, which I think is important. But what is critical in terms of the declaration itself is to ensure that the Native peoples are the stewards and that their right to access and manage is respected. And here, I think, in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, we have to look at what has happened with the declaration of the first monument. You know, I'm not sure that you're aware that a case was brought by Kahea, the Hawaiian Environmental Alliance, because diseases relating to corals were imported. These folks were given a permit by the NOAA to import diseases into the pristine Northwest Hawaiian Islands for research purposes. Unfortunately, they were spilled into the ocean, and this is how the Northwest became exposed to various coral diseases that were not there. This happened in the last 10 years. It came uh, to the court's attention Mm -hmm. in litigation that was filed, and the NOAA was involved. So there is a very important reason for understanding mm-hmm. how traditional knowledge is applied. Right. And, because and, 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 Western extractive practices, extractive scientific research, can be very dangerous to the resource itself. But we also will lose our right to access for food. What is now recognized as the most pristine of all the fisheries remaining in the world. Milani, I have to interrupt you just, but also the state. I want to be able to get some of the folks around the table into into this conversation too. Thank you so much for your call. I'm very glad that you phoned.
when you hear some of the points that she's made, that this is not all a linear and a very good story, that it, in fact, loops back on itself with some rather negative consequences and not always ones that we would have envisioned or that would have been part of of a conversation to be able to bring people in to steward resources. But in fact, in the way in which it's doing it, it's, it's just as much a potential threat as perhaps not having it at all. I'd like you to comment on some of, of what Mililani Trask had to say. I mean, I think she's right. I mean, I think, as she said, Vicky Tally Corpus, the UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Rights, was there last week. She released a report recognizing many of the issues she highlighted, that there had been advancement in some conservation, but there's also still a lot of issues going on. We see in places like Africa that there's still um, evictions or resource restrictions of Indigenous peoples. Um, and I think we do have to work to improve those scenarios. Some of it is it's not either the local communities or the local NGOs. It's that di- dichotomy of being in the middle of government and indigenous people and how you move and make sure rights are protected and recognized and you can move that forward. There are many opportunities to look at how you look at conflict resolution around these issues and bring together dialogue. Um, there's a mechanism called the Fakatani mechanism that is being used now to help look at the issue of uh, repatriation of how you look at the issues when communities have been evicted or have not have been denied their rights with respect to their original territory. And that's really helping to foster a dialogue. But it's a long process and how you resolve these issues that have been historic on many occasions, but making sure that the rights of indigenous people are recognized, um, enabled to be able to move forward. And that's an ongoing challenge depending on which context and which government you have and how the perceptions are in that given country. All right. So, Daviana, talk about our government and in particular in Hawaii. Well, um, I think that uh, it's looking at the process by which these protected areas are um, designated and if the community is involved in defining um, what would be the the guidelines and um, and including um, the recognition of the rights of native Hawaiians uh, so I think in every protected area uh, they need to follow the constitutional right which is guaranteed under the article 12 section 7 that the state would uphold um, the traditional rights of native Hawaiian ahupua tenants uh, to have access for re- to resources uh, for um, religious and subsistence um, and cultural purposes, uh, but sometimes when the rules are adopted, um, there's no specific provision f- to implement those rights and uphold those rights. So they almost hang sort of out there amorphically, but there's nothing that brings them into reality. Yeah. So you know the. And so it, it sort of sets up a situation where the practitioner might have to enter the, the reserve and exercise their rights, possibly get arrested, and then go to court to to then assert these are my rights and then get it recognized, where the state should be more proactive and already set up a, a process by which Native Hawaiians would have uh, access as part of the protected area. So, you know, in Ahi Kina'u, for example, when they set up the Natural Air Reserve there, there was a process for application to uh, allow for Native Hawaiians who are from the area to access. And it, it, 
I know that one of the families, the Luai family, had uh, begun the process to apply for that right to be able to still fish and, and gather. And they were they were allowed to go so many times a year with so many people and gather a specific specific amount of um, quantity for each species. Um, likewise, the Protect Kohlabe, I mean, the Kohlabe Island Reserve Commission, when it set up a protected area around Kohlabe, has a process for Native Hawaiian families to apply to be able to gather marine resources for subsistence purposes. Kevin, I want to bring you back into this, too. As you've been listening to this, I've been watching you nod. Mm-hmm. You're there, and literally on the ground, so is Mac there on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Again, when you hear what Mililani Trask had to say and also what you just heard Daviana say, that maybe somebody is going to have to go and, and potentially be arrested mm-hmm. and to be able to push the, the, the issue of, of why they should have those rights which are guaranteed yeah. and to make an issue of it. I mean, it's, it sounds like it's, you know, the, the shoe is on the other foot and that it shouldn't be mm-hmm. and that that's not somewhat, something that someone should have to do, but often there are people who find themselves in exactly that position. Mm-hmm. What do you see as being a movement around that? I mean, if this is gathering steam for having mm-hmm. more indigenous peoples having control or at yeah. least a say or mm-hmm. having been consulted in how this happens, how do you see this moving in a more constructive way in, in Hawaii if that's if that's possible now? Well, actually, f- folks like Uncle Mac and other kupunas in the network have talked about how law uh, sometimes criminalizes uh, our Hawaiian community for practicing and exercising their rights. And I think that's one reason why the communities gather in networks like Ealupu to talk about those together um, so that they can start addressing them together, uh, helping themselves get ahead of the ball. But I think by pushing our state, continually getting to the table and talking to our state to get our state ahead of the ball in the way that um, Deviana talked about, being more proactive rather than sitting back and waiting for something to happen. I mean, there are, like, rules, I think, within the DLNR that talk about DLNR establishing some kind of process, um, and it's been there for a while. Uh, they, With they the process to, unformed. Yeah, that, but they need to they need to act upon it and figure out what that will mm-hmm. be. They need to have that discussion, and I don't think that's really happened. So who's pushing them to have that discussion? Is well, anyone I think we them? are collectively. And the Office growing. of Hawaiian Affairs is also, yeah. I mean, for example, when, Ka'upule, who was set up as a marine protected area just recently, there was no specific guideline and rule. There, there was something in the original rules, and then the attorney general said that there was no way to enforce it, and so it was taken out. But so now the um, University of Hawaii Law School is having a clinic under Kapua Sprout to work with the communities to define what would be uh, a way, an effective way to include into the rule uh, the recognition of Native Hawaiian rights of to to gather and, and fish as they have continuously in that protected area, and that probably could be a model for other marine protected areas, um, because I think once you s- set up a process of uh, to allow for entry, um, then you also need to have some entity that will affirm that these are the people who are are the traditional gatherers and what they are doing are traditional and customary. So in the case of Kohlavi, you have the Kohlavi Island Reserve Commission. In the case of the Natural Air Reserves, you have that commission. But for other, I don't think there's something similar for the many protected areas that the state has set up around the state. So all the, nobody has, Native Hawaiian rights are not recognized in any of the marine protected areas other than Kohlavi and the NARS. So that needs to be 
developed, and I think the law clinic this semester could could lead to that, and hopefully the attorney general's office would approve it. Daliana McGregor, thank you so much for that. Going to go back to our phone now. If you would like to join us, the phone lines are open, 941-3689 from Oahu, or if you call us from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689, you can join us that way. Going to Pam, calling us from Eva Beach. Pam, are you there? Hello. Aloha. Oh, God, God. Cut off. You're right there. We can hear you. Hello. Yes, Hello. Aloha, my name is Pam. I am calling for Kevin Kevin Chang, not Poi Poi, Daviana. Um, the question that I have is that in listening to you, there are many of us Native Hawaiians that are here that, you know, it's a shame that we have to take that legal step in order for us to get to practice our cultural and Native rights. Is there a way that we can follow as Daviana explain that there is a process that as community groups we can continue um, out here in Kulio'o, in our in Manalua Bay just for us to be able to go to the beach we have to have a piece of paper that says I can come and sit here on your grass we carry that around with us right here in Manalua Bay because the homes that are along that area, um, you know, we're not able to do that. People will come out and say, because it has happened to my husband and I just sitting there, we couldn't sit on the grass. So now we have a piece of paper from Kamehameha Schools that says we are allowed to come and sit there. Because the state, the way that people have it here, um, it's... You can't see where the, where the boundary lines are. So it looks like for these homeowners um, and their million-dollar homes that they own everything to the waterfront, but that is not so. So yeah. in, I don't know how they do it in other communities, but it, here we have to have that piece of paper okay, every Pam. time we go to that beach. Pam, thank My you. Thanks for is, Go ahead, go ahead. Is there, is there really a process that we can all follow? Is there something written that we can access on the state uh, website so that other communities who have to go through this um, can follow a process? She's looking for something that's more universal, more standard, and not having to go into a situation where you would be potentially, you know, threatened and told to leave, but something that would be just universally applicable. I mean, it sounds like there is the beginning of that there, but not something that is moving through all communities. Is that right? Uh, Yes, I think, well, I think this is where it bridges into the question of Native Hawaiian sovereignty, because I think if there is a Native Hawaiian, if there were a Native Hawaiian government, which, you know, those of us who participated in the constitutional process would like to see that government set up through a constitution, then it would be clear that the Native Hawaiian rights, you know, the government-to-government relationship would be set up so that the Native Hawaiian government would would clarify this with the state government, the federal government, and it, it, it would be clear to all in the public that Native Hawaiian have these rights, and then, you know, people who 
perhaps there would be some process where Native Hawaiians are would be identified, there would be acknowledged that this right exists. So I think it crosses over into governance and so, and the recognition of a government-to-government relationship would, but, would but, establish that. But that's that. been thwarted. I mean, we watched what happened over the last 18 months, two years. So in the absence of that, what happens now? I think that's really mm-hmm. what Pam is asking is yeah. you know, how do we all ensure that we have access as you know they're supposed to be able to have access? And she says, you know, she carries this piece of paper around to prove it and in her mind, the implicit question seems to be, why should they have to? And why isn't there something that's just universally known? Yes. Well, I don't know. I know, I know the one thing that is being done is that um, the legislature did pass a law that all members of boards and commissions, those who manage our lands and resources, um, do need to go through a training in what are Hawaiian rights, what is the basis of Hawaiian rights, and it goes back to the you know, the origin of private property under private property when the king agreed to allow private property to to be uh, established. He also mandated that the rights of the people to go to the ocean and to go to the mountains to gather the resources that are needed for subsistence would be continue to be honored and acknowledged. And so there is education going on through those commissions and uh, people who are on, who are in the legislature and on boards of commissions. But I think there's a gap between that level and then on the ground, when you know, when, when you're walking on the, yeah. uh, when you're not walking some somewhere, and somebody comes out and says, "Hey, you can't be here. What do you do? You're gonna, you're gonna assert your right. You gotta get arrested. That that everybody is put in that position. So I think the sooner we can work toward that universal acknowledgement, and I think that would come through, you know, establishing our government. The, then that would facilitate that process. But the other way is to be proactive and set up. You know what Mac is working on with the communities beginning to manage our resources and and the near shore resources. So then, with because within communities, we build we are neighbors and we build relationships that are neighborly and supportive of each other. So then, you don't run into these negative situations. And maybe Mac could expand on you know what is the benefits of community based fishing areas you know in terms of this issue of access. So what I have to say is that there's many gaps. And I said this yesterday on a panel that I sat on. There's gap between communities. There's gap between the community and government. There's gaps between government. So in Hawaii, there's a big, big gap. And all of those gaps need to be closed somewhat. Um, communities, we can do them on our own without government help. Government need our help because we're going to have to discuss all this stuff that we need to work on. Government to government, well, that's a big question. In the past, things haven't been working well. That's why we're in a position we are today. And um, we're still looking for answers. And like I said earlier, you know, President Ramangazal from Palau, he has the answer. And our government needs to look at that and kind of act on it. Don't talk about it. Act on it. Thank you, Mac. I want to ask, Kristen, before we have to go away, as you've been listening to this conversation over the last couple of minutes, 
Put Hawaii into the, the greater context that you see. How different is this from what you have seen in other places around the United States and around the world? Um, it's not very different. I think Mac hit the nail on the head when it comes to these gaps. There's gaps within communities. There's gaps between governments and communities and among governments. Oftentimes, governments are siloed. While one part of government may be trying to do the right thing, the other part of government is doing something that could inhibit that moving forward. And it does take a lot of awareness building across these silos, either within your own communities and having those voices to bring the communities together to address issues, but also helping to educate government or educating the public. And I, based on Pam's comment earlier, how to make sure the public knows who has rights to these areas and how to make sure homeowners. So I think a lot of it has to do with bridging those gaps and building awareness and making sure. And, and that's the challenge. How big and how wide do you go when you're building awareness? And it takes, it takes a step-by-step process to do that. But we do need to bridge the gaps across all of these spectrums. In part of what, what Pam had to say, I mean, as perhaps simple as a disclosure, when you buy a home mm-hmm. that's at the shoreline, are those disclosures being made to a, a prospective homeowner that, hey, this is really where your property goes, and no, you can't tell someone they exactly. can't be at, at this part of it, or there has to be access. There have been complaints of, you know, along the uh, the east side of Honolulu in various places that access to the ocean has been somewhat blocked or thwarted in some ways, and that uh, you know, people have been right miffed that they haven't been able to sometimes get through, which seems to go to sort of a low level of education. Uh, with realtors, with uh, with people who are, are looking to buy property. That's a whole other subject that maybe we'll take on, on another show. We're coming down to the last few minutes of this one. And I want to go right around the table and have all of you again just sort of, you know, cluck this back up that after all you've heard at the IUCN, after part of our discussion today, and what you know that is happening around Hawaii in, in perhaps ways we haven't been able to touch on tonight, where do you see the whole issue of community-based resource management going from this point forward, even if you to give us a, an outlook over the next three years. And, and I'll start with, with Uncle Mac. From what I heard um, the governor say at the opening of the, the Congress, he made a promise. And I'm going to take him up on that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think the, the DLNR is looking somewhat a little bit more serious at um, closing a gap. All right. Let me move on because we're going to have to say goodbye in just about a minute. So you got about 20 uh, the, seconds there. The reason Kevin. CUA exists is to bridge that gap and bring more equity between government, community, community, community. And so that's you're going to be busy. That's what folks like Uncle Mac and other kupunas like Charlie and people like Pam are doing by talking to each other and finding out that private issues are public issues. And Daviana. Yeah, I think that um, after Mo'omomi goes through the process, there are other communities that are also planning to put in proposals to manage their resources. So I think this will be expanding. Well, I want to thank all of you for being here. We'll be checking back with you to see how this, in fact, is going and not just dropping it here. Daviana McGregor, thank you so much for being here. Mac Poipoi, Kevin Chang, and Kristen Walker, thank you all for joining us. And if you missed any part of the program, it will be uploaded a little later tonight, and you can give it another listen. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'll see you tomorrow morning right back here for the conversation. Meanwhile, have a lovely evening. Aloha.